Support for this podcast is brought to you by Lucy Van Pelt's Psychiatric Help. Does the Christmas season have you feeling blue? Are there days when you're feeling like such a blockhead that even your dog is laughing at you? Come on down to Lucy's Psychiatry Booth, where for just five cents, she'll listen to all of your troubles. Book an appointment online using the promo code KISTAPOD for 20% off your first visit. Enjoy the show. Good morning, 10 a.m. Santa's coming to town. Oh my God! Would you please tell him that instead of presents this year, I just want my family back. Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It must be magic! I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. Nobody's walking out on this fun old-fashioned family Christmas. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? True, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Tis the Podcast, the podcast determined to keep this Christmas spirit alive 365 days a year. I'm Julia. I'm Anthony. I'm Tom. Hey guys, it's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. You know, I I um, really, when we started this, I thought once a week was going to, you know, might be kind of tough, but I start getting real <laughs> antsy around Friday to talk to you guys again. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm like, glad I'm not the only one. I really do. I'm like, oh, why? Why do we have to wait until Monday or Tuesday night? And then by the time <laughs> our by the time our episode drops, I feel like the entire world has changed. Yeah, and then, and then so we um, and then week um, and then weekends get busy for the three of us, and I'll just subconscious unconsciously no new messages, and the sad Charlie Brown music will play in my head where he puts his head down and walks home alone. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to talk to them. <laughs> That's so sad. (laughs) So we've had a rough time lately, full of human suffering from the restoration efforts going on in Puerto Rico, Irma recovery, and uh, most recently, the great loss of life in Vegas. Our hearts go out to those hurting. I think partly why Tom, Anthony, and I love Christmas so much is the sense of Christmas spirit that seems so unique to that time of year. Um, Selfless giving, time spent with loved ones and those closest to you the fellowship around dinner tables, around the glow of a Christmas tree. Effectually, Christmas spirit is just what we hope for in humanity, what we hope to persist all year. So our goal is to keep that Christmas spirit alive 365 days a year and to inspire you to do the same. So lots of love from us to you. And it looks like we were just joined by Dr. Lind. Plot summary, Anthony? Christmas lights may be twinkling red and green, but Charlie Brown has a yuletide blues. To get in the holiday spirit, he takes Lucy's advice and directs a Christmas play. And what's a Christmas play without a Christmas tree? But everyone makes fun of the short, spindly, nevergreen Charlie Brown brings back until the real meaning of Christmas works its magic once again. Well, for all of our listeners, we are really lucky today to be joined by Dr. Stephen Lind, who is an expert on absolutely everything peanuts as we learned this week when we read his book um all three of us got your book and read it this week i learned a whole lot and i'm ready to jump in and ask you a few questions about it thanks for being with us oh for sure it is my pleasure thanks for so much for inviting me well we uh, crowdsourced a couple of questions for you first i think the one thing we're missing here is if you can just share with us i mean you obviously invested a lot of time researching charles schultz's entire life 
where did your where did your interest for for him and his comic strips come from? Like probably, well, not probably, definitely like millions of people, I have been a true Charlie Brown fan since I was very young. And I always suspected that there was something more to the comic strips, even at a young age, than just simple wittiness. Um, a Charlie Brown Christmas was definitely a real um, point of interest for me in that. And then as I continued my schooling, working on my uh, PhD, I got an opportunity to do some research into the Peanuts franchise, and the deeper I looked, the more I found that, sure enough, there is a whole lot of really rich insights and history behind the comic strips and Charles Schultz himself. And at a certain point when I had a really wonderful, cool chance to meet his family, I, got, uh, I, I had this realization that there was a story that I couldn't not tell a book that I could not write. And it's been a real treat spending a better part of a decade working on this project about Schultz and his Peanuts work. Very cool. Well, jumping right into uh, the movie, we have two questions for you. The first one says, uh, I'm a Brit who never really got the whole Charlie Brown experience as a child. And I have a question just asking why you think it never made it outside of the U.S. as a cultural institution in the same way as some other cartoons and shows did. The Peanuts franchise really is rooted in classic mid-20th century middle Americana. It's, it is very Midwest, Minnesota. Yet at the same time, Charles Schultz really did have a knack for speaking to the universal human experience. So the Peanuts brand has had some pretty strong success globally. In fact, Japan, for example, is the second largest consumer base for the Peanuts, uh, Peanuts franchise. The, the Japanese culture loves themselves some Snoopy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not quite the same as the love for a Charlie Brown Christmas in specific that we have here in the States. There's something about the Christmas tradition and the way that it is represented in the special that really speaks to American uh, American rituals and traditions and kind of attitudes and tones that didn't translate quite the same way. Some of that has to do with the media history. Like we have television specials that air annually here in other countries. There's not always the same newspaper or television setup. So in some ways it's just, uh, it's kind of a society infrastructure thing that caused Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang to catch on in different ways globally. And so with, with Britain, it has its own quirks, but on on the whole, Charlie Brown is an extremely well loved franchise across the globe. It is, and as a matter of fact, the 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 person who wrote the question said that personally, I was really invested in it as a twenty seven year old man when I first watched it. It sums up the festive vibe quite wonderfully and has that old fashioned feel that just feels right more so as at the holidays, which is how where a lot of people seem to land on this. And then we have one of our common redditors. Uh, Disco54, who uh, is very involved in our subreddit, said, Not surprisingly, I do have a question for Dr. Lind. I just watched today for the first time ever as a 41-year-old man. A Charlie Brown Christmas really wasn't what I thought it was going to be. How much of a problem was the commercialization of Christmas perceived in 1965? Because it's very relevant today. Yeah, it is so interesting to me that the themes in A Charlie Brown Christmas from 1965 are so relevant today. And that sentiment has been really true for its 50 plus years on air. It is a struggle that American society has had for the, the better part of a century, actually. So A Charlie Brown Christmas 
what one of the reasons it was so successful actually was because it was striking a lot of the same notes that were pretty common across other Christmas specials at the time. And so its commentary on commercialism was not totally out of the blue. There were other TV episodes and TV specials that were doing similar, that were taking on similar themes. It just has, as it turns out, uh, American capitalism is, and American religious traditions especially, I have it, culture has this kind of continued tension between personal religious beliefs or personal philosophies and this idea of more and more stuff. Christmas just brings it out maybe more than any other moment in the whole year. It really does. And it's kind of interesting that this, a similar theme of, of grandiosity at the holidays and excess has a uh, really plagued the Christian West for hundreds of years now. We had the uh, the Puritans outlawed Christmas celebration because it had just become a big drunken debauchery in England. So there's been this constant struggle, but Charlie Brown seemed to do a lot more positive way of handling that than uh, Cromwell and his uh, cronies. Yeah, I actually really like the, um, the way that Charles Schultz kind of did not reconcile the tension that there there is... It's not that he said all commercialism is bad. He maybe pointed to the excess of commercialism as being a bad thing. And in many of his um, his writings or his interviews, he would mention, for instance, the fact that his franchise had gotten so ginormous. I mean, this like multi-billion dollar franchise that was spanning the globe with Charlie Brown plastered on just about every product you could ever imagine. And he, he commented that it did make him a little bit uncomfortable, but at the same time, he liked the fact that that meant he could employ a whole bunch of people. So uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, for me, has a recognition that over-commercialism is bad. But at the same time, it's not like Snoopy is tarred and feathered for taking part. He's just kind of, a, we kind of roll our eyes at him as opposed to casting him out of the community. One of the things I found really interesting in your book when reading about Charles Schultz was, you know, I mean, there was this big definitive, yes, there will be this religious Christian theme in the movie. Linus is going to read from the Bible, and, and he wasn't moving on that. But uh, when you look at his personal life, you had written that his he didn't instill a strong uh, Christian theological upbringing to his children. And one of his daughters, against his advice, joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I found that to be really interesting. Um, so, so did I, and so <laughs> does his family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we just see him as this, this religious voice because of this. I mean, he was the voice of, of Christianity in the 1600s in the media, and yet he didn't bring that home. The, do you mind explaining to us where he came from on that? His, yeah, his goal was for his children to find their own faith if they were going to find one. Folks of different religious ilk will have varying opinions on whether or not that's such a great idea. His children were very aware of his spiritual interests. They knew that it was a personal thing of their dad's. They saw him sitting in his leather chair reading his Bible rather frequently. He led Sunday school for two decades at two different churches, a Church of God church and a Methodist church, adult Sunday school. And so his children were really aware of his religious faith, but he almost never talked about it at home, which seems kind of peculiar. Mm -hmm. it's, it's partially because of his own personality, where he was not one who liked to overtly, directly tell you that you were wrong. He might want to prod you and provoke you to, to consider whether or not you're wrong, but he rarely wanted to say, hey, you, you're wrong. And so that was not really something that then lent him to um, trying to indoctrinate his children. Uh, he also believed that that faith, that religious belief, really had to be personal. And so even when he was leading his adult Sunday school class, he wanted the people in his Sunday school class to figure the ideas out for themselves and to share what their insights were 
after reading the Bible themselves. And so his children did not love going to Sunday school. They, they just they just didn't enjoy it. And so he didn't pressure them to, and he didn't talk about it much to, much at home. And so it wasn't until later in their adult lives that some of them really began to question it, including his um, one of his daughters who then conver- converted to the Mormon church um, and is still an active member in it today and reflected even at that time that it was difficult for her to consider what it might mean to have LDS faith because she had just never really had conversations about faith at all, despite the fact that her dad was sitting there in the leather chair reading his Bible. It's a peculiar uh, story. Unfortunately, they had a really warm, close family, so it's not like it was a rift or anything, but it is a peculiar one. I thought it was funny when we saw the picture uh, in your book of of his kids on the his kids on the horses when he was on his way to Sunday school and they were doing horseback riding lessons instead. Yeah. yeah. That's not entirely surprising, I guess, the home life and that he wasn't forcing religion on him given the way that he came to it himself. I think that was maybe the most interesting part to me was that he attended so often and then he kept going until he got to that point where he was so intrigued where he was like, yep, yeah, this is legit and this is real. And that was fascinating to me. It seems so different from so many people's experience, conversion, so to speak, experiences these days. I really enjoyed all of that part. I didn't know any of that about him. Yeah, it really is a a different way of thinking about one's coming to faith, that it wasn't, he did not have a fiery writing on the wall sort of moment. He would even say that he, he would later in life even really kind of hedge away from kind of conversion language. It was just that he had found this community after coming back from World War II and the community was supportive and he could connect with them. Uh, and he was also curious about the religious thoughts. And so just the, the beliefs and the, the had, had a slow build to them based upon his personal study until he had a moment where he could kind of reflect and say, huh, I, I guess I'm here. I guess I do believe. Perfect. Well, now we will go to our the typical questions we ask one another, and we'll let you, uh, of course, answer first. Julia, you want to take over? Yeah. So my favorite question that we ask every week is, what is our history with the movie, our personal history with it? So first time you ever watched it, what do you remember of it? I watched A Charlie Brown Christmas kind of on repeat as a child. We had a VHS copy with the little paper sleeve, and it said, D. Lind on it. My, my, mother, my mother's name was Donna Lind. So at, at some point she must have let somebody borrow it. So she, she wanted to label it. So we had this VHS copy that I watched over and over and over. So it, it at a certain point became the movie that I would put in when I wanted to fall asleep because it was such a comfort movie. And so it's been a part of my life since as long as I can remember. So you watch it year round? I, I, I watch it uh, maybe bi-monthly is probably a more accurate way to uh, describe how, how often I watch it. <laughs> That's how about awesome. you, Anthony? I remember seeing this first movie, like most people do, when I was really young, the movie for the first time. And um, I can't say that I loved it the first time I saw it compared to other Christmas specials like Rudolph and Frosty and Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And I don't know if that was um, kind of the melancholy feeling. Like, I guess as a uh, really young kid, you know, it's not that I found it depressing. It was just like, it wasn't as upbeat as the other specials. But I still watched it every year and each repeat viewing, I liked it more and more. And now I absolutely love it. It's one of my Christmas staples. I appreciate it for the message about religion and commercialism and, uh, you know, just what a throwback it is. Dr. Lin said it was like a comfort movie. There is something very comforting putting it on and just hearing the, you know, Christmas time is here and then seeing them all skating on the ice. And I love it. I love this movie so much now. There are times when I cannot make it past that Christmas time is here music because I'll, I'll be conked out. It's, it's that comforting for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
What about you, Tom? I remember watching it as a kid with my uh, grandparents. It's been on every year, numerous times. And it was just one of those movies we stopped and watched every year. It wasn't uh, like Anthony. My family was much more uh, into Rankin-Bass. My mom grew up loving Rudolph. That was her favorite her favorite movie. And so uh, that kind of permeated through our family. But I've seen it every year. It does have that warm feeling. And there's a real innocence about it that, I, that I've always been drawn to. I, I know I'm, I'm setting myself up in front of the firing squad. It's not my favorite movie. I don't love it like everybody else here does, but I definitely, it, I, I have fond feelings for it. Tom, you're fired. So <laughs> a, a really, <laughs> a really fun story though. We didn't um, fire you for knocking on the other movies. So we got to keep Tom around. Oh, I don't think we can compare the dislike of Arthur Christmas with uh, dislike, with, but it's not a dislike. I don't dislike the movie, but I do. I think, I'd, I think it moved up quite a bit in my list of movies that I really enjoy um, because when I sat down to watch it today, I had my daughter who is uh, 19 months now and she doesn't really get like do a lot of TV time, but I put it on and I was, I was home here with her and she just came and sat on the couch and cuddled up into my arm on my side and sat there and watched the movie with, with me. It was something that uh, was, like I said, with the innocence that the, the, the voices of the kids reading the, animation everything about it's so innocent but it's also really simple so it's something she could easily follow and was engaging to her so i think after that it's much more a movie i like because it's the first time we've ever really you know had that father daughter cuddle up and watch a movie thing so Hmm. i swooned i I think it's really beautiful (laughs) in its simplicity actually it really is julia you want to tell us what you thought yeah so all good things when it comes to christmas come from either my mother or my brother And this one's from my brother. (laughs) He's seven years older than me. So he was 10 when this movie came out and he loved it from the get go. He loved, he's loved peanuts forever. He's a huge peanut file. Is that even a word? I don't know. Um, You just just worded it. I did. I just created it. So this has played at Christmas time for my entire life. And I remember awareness of it probably when I'm about when I was about six, probably, which is funny because I watched it today with my six-year-old and his joy laughing at all of the Snoopy parts and how much he enjoyed it just reminded me of how much I love this movie. My favorite thing about this movie is that every single Peanuts character, including the ones that actually aren't in this movie, I have been at some point in my life and continue to be, (laughs) I'm sure, in the future. So, I mean, I can't get, the music is my favorite Christmas music and there's literally nothing wrong with this movie for me. Nothing. <laughs> so it's my favorite. Part of what I like so much, let's move into the actual overall plot, is basically what we just said. It's this really simple story, but it's one of those you can dig into deeper based on how deep you want to dig into it, right? Commercialism versus um, the simple love of Christmas and just the relationships. that the, the thing we love so much about Christmas, right? Christmas is a very unique time of year because it's the time of year that all that stuff is amplified you know what are we what do we love most about christmas it's the relationships it's the spirit of christmas it's the um the giving spirit so that's partly my favorite thing about the plot is that charlie brown is grappling with this idea that he feels like something is is wrong with how everybody else is looking at it and i didn't realize until i read your book Stephen, that there was a whole scene between him and Pigpen with the get list mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Oh, i really wish that was still in the movie because that just nails it doesn't it where's your give list and i know that i spend a lot of time in the holiday season battling that commercialism thing with my own kids 
I mean, we've created ways now just as a society to force ourselves into giving like angel tree and, um, you know, serving at soup kitchens and like all of that. Um, because you have to make a conscious effort to think about that, which is a little sad, but (laughs) so I'm really sad that wasn't there. Yeah, there's no record as to why the scene was cut. The scene originally was Charlie Brown and um, and Pigpen having this conversation over, here's my get list, here's my get list, well, where's your give list? And there's no record as to why that was cut. If It, it may have been um, due to the fact that they thought they had already kind of hit the commercialism theme um, sufficiently elsewhere. So maybe they thought thematically it was a little bit redundant, or it may have just been for timing that it made the special just a squeak bit too long. Either way, it really still fits very much with the theme of the special because Charlie Brown really is confronting this question of is Christmas really about getting stuff? Is it about getting real estate or tens and twenties? Uh, and <laughs> and Linus answers with a resounding no, but he's one of the few who has any alternative to to the get. I love the idea of this young, self-aware child who's who's you know everybody else is enjoying and having fun. He's got these deep philosophical problems that are plexing him. And he goes when he goes to Lucy and just says, "I'm depressed." The idea. <laughs> The idea of a kid his age <laughs> being able to articulate that so well was that that's a, a, a level of humor I did not get as a child. Yeah, it's really surprisingly a heavy hitter of a, mm-hmm. of a special. And I think one of the reasons it works so well at Christmas is because, uh, as Julia just said, there is a real amplification of our feelings at Christmas. And that includes loneliness and that includes despair. So a lot of your Christmas specials actually will have, it's very common for Christmas specials to have some strong sense of loneliness or detachment or anguish involved in them like the 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 amount of sadness that is actually in christmas specials is is really kind of astounding and it's because we feel those things stronger at christmas a lot of times and charlie brown in the special is is feeling his depression his detachment his isolation his kind of confusion over the season he's feeling it really strongly in that moment and i think that speaks to a lot of our very real experiences at that time of year that's totally true. I'm from I'm from New York, and around Christmas time, you can either people are either twenty times the people you run into are either twenty times happier and more cheerful, or twenty times angrier and kind of more depressed than they are the rest of the year. And it's really it's really sad. I'm one of these people who goes, you know, obviously I'm doing a Christmas podcast. I love Christmas. I love everything about the season. <laughs> But I always have to remind myself when I see these people like these, you know, acting like Scrooge or the Grinch that not everybody has those same feelings. Like, you know, it amplifies you're struggling the rest of the year. You know, Christmas just makes you feel even more because everyone else is going on about, you know, their family and their friends and who they have to shop for and who they're asking from. And some people just either don't have it or aren't excited by it. So, you know, I really love that about Charlie Brown, that it, he, uh, you know, embodies all of that, all of those mixed feelings. And I'm yeah. glad uh, Charles Schultz fought to keep Linus's religious speech in at the end of the film, because a lot of Christmas specials kind of, they kind of shy away from the more religious aspects of it. Well, and absolutely. it's always the, the Christmas spirit or the meaning of Christmas apart from the religious yeah, he did a great job with that. And, and with the going to, sticking with the, the sadness and depression, I want to just comment on how well they did at being authentic with this. This this show is authentic. We have a lot of a lot of specials that come out, especially you know Hallmark and Lifetime, that try to capture that. But it's always you know the widow or the widower with the kids, and do I move on? It's that same redundant plot line. But we don't really have anything that's 
I think everybody knows better than to try copying it or trying to make some sort of cheap ripoff like they do with so many other things. But I don't know. The, the ability of Charles Schultz, the entire, I mean, everybody who was involved in the production of this, to keep it so authentic, really, I think is what made it a Christmas classic. Yeah, and that authenticity works for both the depression, melancholy, and for the religious content. You can believe Linus, and you can also religiously or philosophically disagree with Linus, but still appreciate that moment because you believe that Linus believes it in that moment, and you don't really fault him for this true, earnest statement of what he finds the real meaning of Christmas to be because there's such kind of grounded, honest authenticity there. And that is that is not something you find all that often, even when Hollywood does decide to include religious content which is very rarely uh it's, it's often done in a in a way that seems to suggest that the folks who wrote it maybe don't quite get it uh and charles schultz clearly got it yeah definitely partly what makes this so successful for me are the characters my favorite character is linus he's always been my favorite um because i think he's a this is what i am and i'm totally fine with being what i am down to the he sucks his thumb all the time and is he too old to be doing that or is he not too old to be doing that we don't care because he's accepted it and the same with the blankie and he was the perfect character to have that pivotal moment in this movie because he is so genuine and he seems so rarely torn between two things right he doesn't seem like there's much conflict in him like there always isn't charlie brown so he He's a great uh, juxtaposition of <laughs> Charlie Brown lots of times. But um, let's talk more about the characters. So first off, it first aired in 1965, um, obviously created by Charles Schultz and directed by Bill Melendez. And they teamed up on all of the Peanuts stuff, which I also did not know. And so they together, or I guess Charles created the characters that Bill really gave them life. Is that right, Stephen? Bill gave them their, their movement, but he did that in really close consultation with Schultz. For instance, one of the things that they decided on was that the characters would only move in certain ways you'd only see them in certain certain positions like only in profile or uh, on a rare occasion you would see them at a three-quarter or two-third turn but usually it's either straight on or in profile because that's what charles schultz did in the comic strips bill melendez and charles schultz had a conversation early on of how do we make this animation look like the comic strip and bill did a really great job of taking that note and really then imbuing it with this really charming (laughs) rather quirky life Yeah, I think one of our questions for this week, guys, should be, which character do you dance like when you dance at a Christmas party? I'm the twin girls. I like the twin girls. That's how I dance. (laughs) Can can I just say before we really dive into each character that every year I put this on, I forget that Woodstock wasn't invented for another five years. So, like, I always expect him to show up, and then he doesn't. And I'm like, oh, Woodstock, where is he? Yeah, there's no Peppermint Patty. There's just Patty, the kind of uh, the character who oddly has the same name as peppermint patty there's no marcy uh, and there is a shermy and there are the twins three and four so for as much as we love charlie brown and this is like canon charlie brown it's also not the it's like only half of the characters we're used to and it's funny because i was in hallmark the other day and they already have all their christmas stuff out but like all of their christmas stuff now they still include a lot of well definitely woodstock but i know some of them include like pepper and patty with all their you know charlie brown christmas items so it's interesting of, how they retroactively added them all in none of them have shermy shermy is typically uh, scratched out because after shortly after uh, charlie brown christmas came out charles schultz just simply stopped drawing shermy he just kind of lost creativity and shortly then he created franklin just a few years after it mm-hmm. so then franklin now in a lot of the merchandising for inclusion purposes and uh, fair representation purposes and if we're being honest for some product marketing purposes franklin who happens to be an african-american character is included pretty pretty frequently which i, I would argue is a good thing but um he is actually not in this original 
original show because he had not been created yet, like like Woodstock. I'm really bummed that Shermie didn't take off. He had my favorite line from this, just because it was me as a kid in the Christmas play at church, where, uh, you know, inevitably Lucy comes up and she tells him, Shermie, you're a shepherd. And he says, every Christmas it's the same. I always end up playing a shepherd. And, and that was very much how I felt about the Christmas plays at church. <laughs> So I kind of, I've always related to him. Uh, that's great. I've always loved Snoopy in this special. You know, maybe I'm <laughs> a more simpler guy. I just like, <laughs> I just uh, find Snoopy hilarious, you know, winning first place in the lights and decoration contest or mocking Lucy behind her back while she's giving her <laughs> angry tirade <laughs> or even laughing at Charlie Brown when the other kids are bullying. <laughs> like, there's just something hilarious about Snoopy. <laughs> I really yeah, love- he is a perennial favorite. And actually, there are some diehard Peanuts fans who at a certain point started to uh, hate Snoopy because he was really kind of almost t- taking over the franchise because so many people loved him. But they loved him reason because, because he's a great character. <laughs> well, I, actually, worldwide, is Snoopy more famous or is Charlie Brown more famous? Just overall it, worldwide. It depends on the locale. In in the U.S., they, they I'd say there's a, a, a pretty strong competition between the two of them. In Japan, for instance, it's Snoopy. It's Snoopy by a country mom. It depends a little bit on location, but Snoopy's he's he's no slouch in how much people do love him. Right. Okay, that's what I figured. I was just curious about that. I love seeing for I love seeing for sale when they have for sale his his house with all the lights on it. That that's what people take away and sell because of Charlie's Charlie Brown's sentiment towards the whole, the whole thing and what, what Schultz was going for with the over dramatic or the uh, uh, over commercialization and the focus on the wrong things that people are still selling his uh, lighted house as a Christmas tree ornament. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> so we've got who. Else. We've got Charlie Brown, which is almost perpetually depressed the entire movie. We have Snoopy, who just rags on him nonstop. His howling, <laughs> when he starts howling, when everybody's finds out he's the director, is one of my absolute favorite parts in the movie. <laughs> that and when he does the vulture on top of Lucy's head is mm-hmm. primo for me when it comes to like the funny stuff. And he provides such a good comedic balance, I think, to some of the heavier parts. And then you've got Snoopy to lighten things up. Plus, it makes my six-year-old laugh. Plus- all the animal sounds. Those, yes. those, have, those have me laughing today, especially when uh, when my daughter is mocking when they say sheep and she starts buying it. Was I loved his penguin impression <laughs> yeah. and the sound effects to go with it. <laughs> I, I also loved him just sitting on top of his house, reading the paper and eating the popping bones, bones into his mouth. Mm-hmm. The bones that don't actually go down in the amount in the bowl because that would take more animation work than they really, they really would. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's really funny. Yeah, they were on a really, really tight uh, production schedule. And so things like uh, piles of dog bones, just, you know, they they couldn't be quite as detailed as one might desire. (laughs) It did sound delicious, though. They really did. (laughs) You know, um, Um, can I say something about Charlie Brown real quick? I really admired his uh, sarcastic gall going up to, um, what's her name, and saying, uh, thanks for sending me a Christmas card this year. And (laughs) And she's like, I didn't send you a Christmas card, Charlie Brown. Doesn't anyone get sarcasm anymore? Like, I wish I could, like, go up to, like, a periphery person I know and just be like, thanks for sending me a Christmas card, sarcastically. Like, I wish I had that much gall. Well, no, because I'm a little more polite than that, but <laughs> I just found that really funny. I was like, wow, the nerve. Some of those kids are real jerks, yeah, by all. the way. 
Yeah, they have <laughs> a real bite to them. There's a, there's a kind of a cruelty and a meanness to them at times that some of the, the cute Snoopy stuffed animals you can buy now can sometimes make you forget just how just how sharp their tongues could be. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and that's only accentuated by the, the fact they were voiced by real children. These are real kids mm-hmm. saying these horrible things and being so mean to Charlie Brown. <laughs> so we also have Linus, who, again, is my favorite. Um, kind of that really steadfast character. Uh, Lucy, who's pretty sassy the entire time, as to be expected. Um, I know a few Lucys. I've been Lucy. My wife, Sarah, she's not a Lucy, but if a dog licks her, she reacts like the same way Lucy did when Snoopy <laughs> oh. licked her. <laughs> Tries to deck him. No, not deck him, but like, you know, get the whatever, boil hot water, dog oh germs. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, Schroeder. I love Schroeder just because he pulls in my second favorite part of this whole movie, which is the music by Vince mm-hmm. Garaldi. My brother and I are big music fans in general. And um, what's funny is I am not a jazz fan like at all, but I can listen to this all day. So I don't know what the difference is, if it's just a little more structured and that's what my little structured heart needs or what, but I love how you're not expecting this music at all in a Christmas movie, but now it's canon. It is the Christmas song. Christmas time is here is, it's my Christmas song now. It's the first one I listened to and it's a true testament to the musical genius, honestly. And I love how Schroeder song. is the inbox. Yeah, um, and that came about in a really uh, kind of unplanned way. Vince Guaraldi had written the tune for Christmas Time is Here and he called up Bill Melendez and said or Lee, Lee Mendelson actually the, the producer and he, he called up Mendelson and said I've got this little tune I'm, I've been thinking about getting good work for the show and he played it for him and Lee Mendelson loved it and so then just kind of jotted down some word for the kids to sing and they sang it it's beautiful and then 50 plus years later we still totally love it mm-hmm. yeah. it's definitely more timeless than Christmas and Hollis <laughs> why did you have to bring up that song Oh, Anthony. Dr. Lynn, do you know Christmas and Hollis? (laughs) I don't. By Run DMC? Okay, that's probably safe. (laughs) That'll end this conversation quickly. I recommend, highly recommend that song. Like, these two are against me. Our our (laughs) listeners agree with me, but... What? (laughs) It's all in good fun. It's a good song. I, I would recommend at least listening to it. Because I would love to know whether or not you think it's a good Christmas. Yeah, I'll have to put it on my on my playlist to give it, <laughs> give it a give it a listen to maybe before the Christmas season really gets too deep, so that it doesn't you know jar my experience this uh, this this winter. If yeah, I, I would, choose not to, listen. I would listen to it before putting it on your playlist. <laughs> <laughs> Rounding out at least the main characters, Sally. I have a little sweet place in my heart for Sally. I love her little (laughs) bit with the Santa Claus letter. And I love her line, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. <laughs> and I love Charlie's the just like, I'm so too. done. The wording is so great and the delivery is so great. The delivery sounds so wonky because the they had real child actors, um, like I said, doing the voices and the children could not, they couldn't remember their lines. And so they had to feed them bit by bit what the lines were. And so that's why Sally has this kind of wonky, choppy voice because she's just saying like half a sentence at a time. But it is so perfect. It I is. mean, it, it ages her perfectly. Oh, they did such a great job with that. When I was watching this today, I the way she opened her letter, you know, Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How is your wife? <laughs> I don't know if, like, that's where I got it from, but when I was young, that's how I would always open my letters to Santa, too. So I think it must have subconsciously slipped in, and I would, because I would always start out asking, how's Rudolph? 
That's so but, funny. Um, all I, I could think when she said, I just want what's mine. I want what's coming, what I have coming to me. Um, all I could think was, all I could do was go back to Krampus last week and be like, oh, honey, no. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> That'd be a twisted sequel, wouldn't it? <laughs> so since we're already quoting some of our favorite things, um, let's talk about likes and dislikes. Um, we've already talked about a lot of likes already, I think. So favorite quotes? For me, though we've already talked about it a little bit, the scene where Linus recites from the gospel is uh, r- important for me personally. And it's as a as a scholar, as a something of a media historian, and as an industry analyst, it is really peculiar and in in an important way. Even in the 1960s, which uh, we often think of as the good old days, back when you could talk about stuff you believed in, it actually was not the good old days in the television industry for talking about religious faith. In fact, less than nine percent of Christmas specials on TV during the 1960s had a an affirmative substantive reference to religion less than less than 9% and the ones that did were ones that were cartoons with the little kid and an animal so the little drummer boy and Davian Goliath and Charlie Brown which really speaks to just how hard it was in the 1960s in this kind of public mainstream medium to talk about faith and so the fact that you have Linus get up there and say pretty straightforwardly, this is what Christmas is all about, it's just super powerful. And it resonated with so many viewers when it first aired. It still resonates with viewers. And for me personally, it, it will it will always resonate. You know, I, I find it really interesting. We've had this whole, for several years, whether it's real or it's concocted, this concept of the war on Christmas. But we... S- that's what I took away from this movie. Well, not the only thing that I took away from this movie, that this is nothing new, um, especially after reading your book and researching and seeing how hard they had to fight to even keep just that little part of the, the gospel in the movie and how the producers were con- were so worried about it and didn't know what to expect. And it was it was interesting to see that this is not a new concept, but something that, that seemed to be a, a, at play 50 years ago. I love, well, it's like I was saying before, I love that scene as well. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I really appreciate it, like in that sense, but also because, like I said earlier, a lot of specials, especially modern specials, don't acknowledge the religious side at all. They just kind of dance around it and kind of talk about peace on earth, goodwill toward men, but leave out the whole religious aspect. I love that speech, and I'm glad Schultz fought to keep it in. And it was because- done so well, like you noted in the book, too. It was done without the whole cramming it. It just, it was there and it resonated for itself. It's a beautiful part. I usually pointed out the more funny quotes that I like, and this movie had a ton of them. But one of them is um, when Lucy and Linus were talking and he was like, give me one good reason why I should memorize this. And she's like, I'll give you five. One, two, three, four, five. And he's like, those are five good reasons. This this isn't only getting too commercial, it's getting too dangerous. (laughs) I'm a militant, real Christmas tree fanatic. I have to have a real tree in my home, always have. So much so that my first job I got working at a grocery store back home in outside of Houston. And uh, when Christmas time came around, I volunteered to work extra hours and was the only person who was excited to work in the Christmas trees and help people pick those out and load them up. So I loved when Charlie and Linus went to get the Christmas tree and they're tapping on the aluminum and you hear this metal clinking sound. (laughs) Yeah, and Linus says, do they still make wooden Christmas trees? (laughs) I love how iconic the tree itself has become. Like, not only, like, uh, you know, for both people who love Christmas and people who don't necessarily like decorating or anything like that. So for me... Again, I love Christmas, obviously. I have one of the Charlie Brown Christmas trees in my house every year. 
but so does my aunt who kind of loathes the holiday season, but she puts it up like, I celebrate, you know, I don't want to go out all out and decorate, so here's my Charlie Brown Christmas tree. <laughs> so I like how it means, it, that tree means different things to different And the fact that it has become something of a cultural idiom that you can go to the grocery store a lot, see a rather ramshackle tree and say, oh, it's a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree. That's actually really good for the franchise and for the special. The fact that it has caught on as a label, even external to the special itself, means that it uh, Schultz and the, and the animators really struck something, struck something great with the with the wording and the and the visual element. And I bet there are definitely people who specifically pick out those trees now because of Charlie <laughs> Brown. So I loved it when uh, Lucy is sitting with Schroeder and she's asking him to play Jingle Bells, and he keeps giving her different renditions, and she gets annoyed with him, and he just starts tapping with one finger. <laughs> And it's sad. for some reason his his beautiful grand piano suddenly turns into like a two dollar child's piano sound. <laughs> and I love the in the middle how he goes from a, this wonderful playing of the grand piano to it being an organ sound, yeah. which is like non sequitur. <laughs> but that's just that's this kind of classic Schultz wittiness right there, where you it just seems a little bit off for some reason because it is a little bit off. L- Lucy, though, I love the when she she talks to Charlie Brown <laughs> soon soon after that part. She's like, look, Charlie, let's face it. We all know that Christmas is a big commercial racket. It's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know? (laughs) That makes me laugh so hard every time. Growing up, I could not parse out what those words were, and I I did not know what a syndicate was. So I thought it was a big Easter syndicate, and I wasn't really sure what an Easter syndicate was. (laughs) <laughs> Let alone, what I, mean, I guess Eastern Syndicate is not that much more uh, common for most folks. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh, how funny! No, really I, funny. And so it, it wasn't until really uh, it was a, a long while later when I was reading about how comic strips are syndicated and how there was this, the United Features Syndicate office out out east on the East Coast in New York. That it like decades after I had first watched this, all of a sudden like this you know light bulb switched uh, kind of out of the blue for me, and I, I I finally understood what these words were that I, that I had heard dozens and dozens of times. Can I ask a question real quick? I'm used to all of the other you know strips and some of the other movies where Lucy's psychiatry stand is the doctor is in. Mm. So why does it say the doctor is real in? I've never understood mm-hmm. that. Is that a '60s thing? Or no, what? that was a that was a they're doing the stuff pretty quickly, and it was kind of still pretty early in these psychiatry um, booth strips. So it just had not quite uh, become routine quite yet. In the same way that you would see in some of the original illustrations that were colored for some of the reprint books, uh, Charlie Brown would be wearing a red zigzag t-shirt mm-hmm. or an orange one instead of a yellow one. And then at a certain point, uh, when, w- once they had repeated the stuff enough, it then got kind of its rules. So Lucy, for a little while, is a, a, both a real doctor and an in-doctor and then stops being quite so real because <laughs> I guess it didn't look as good. How funny. Okay. Um, Pig Pen, his line is really cute, by the way. In spite of my outward appearance, I shall try to run a neat in. <laughs> I definitely yeah. like the male characters so much more than the female characters. Oh, I find mm. Sally and Lucy hilarious. So They are hilarious, but like as far as genuine and like people that speak to me, it's... The guys are always self-aware, I feel like. Yeah, it's not until you get Peppermint Patty and, and Marcy in the strip that you have a slightly more approachable, maybe a little bit more uh, uh, characters with their heads on a little bit more straight at times. Uh, none of the characters' heads are on fully straight ever, <laughs> but, but, but you get a little bit more relatable, a little bit more substance. Um, 
uh, on a re- on a recurring basis from them than say you do um, the, you know Lucy's character or Sally's character. Though I love both those characters a lot, but um, they it wasn't until later that um, the kind of gender imbalances rebalanced just a squeak bit. When Charlie Brown is announced as director and Snoopy laughs hysterically at him. I love that they took the moment for Charlie Brown just to kind of look at him and then just say, man's best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so clever. And just like such a throwaway, like, little bit. But it's awesome. It's hilarious. Yeah, similarly, when... when Schroeder is playing on the piano, sh- sharing what his music is going to be, and Snoopy is dancing on top of the piano, at a certain point, he's, Schroeder stops playing, Snoopy keeps dancing, and then realizes that he's dancing to no music, and everybody's staring at him, and so his face <laughs> turns red, and he slowly slinks away. It actually takes a lot of airtime. It's a lot of frames that are happening on the, on the screen, but it's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful, kind of awkward uh, moment where you, know, where you get to witness Snoopy's uh, Snoopy's shame, his embarrassment. Uh, <laughs> it's delightful. I just love how iconic it is too. Uh, the Peanuts music, like when they're all dancing and Charlie Brown's trying to get them out under control. Like, ah, oh, it makes me so happy hearing that music and seeing them do their horrible dancing. I love it. I really do. I still have no clue what the play is about. <laughs> <laughs> it has a Christmas queen. That's all you need to know. <laughs> You do think I'm beautiful, don't you? <laughs> I love when she she when Lucy stomps off in the very neck cutaway. She's standing there right next to Charlie Brown, like she knew she'd been offended, and uh, or when she'd been she knew when she'd been insulted, and then the very next scene, she's right there next to Charlie again. Oh, I feel dirty calling him Charlie. It's got to be Charlie Brown. (laughs) (laughs) It just doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, just say Charlie. Charlie. It's not him. I can say that I can work that. I know when I've been insulted line into real life. Just to see what other people will pick up on it. How often do they? Oh, not as often as I would like. I love the end of this movie when they've made the tree look all pretty and Charlie Brown comes back and they're like, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. And then they sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Such a beautiful moment. It really is so heartwarming. Uh, What I love about that, one one of the things I love about it is how that kind of is part of the rhythm of Schultz's, some of his meanness and his cruelty in the language, it is resolved. And when it is resolved, um, it is just fully and truly resolved. Like there's no, oh, I think those kids probably still hate Charlie Brown feeling in that moment. It's just a true collective moment of embracing that is just uh, really heartwarming. And I, I love that we're able to have that honest, positive moment to kind of balance out and cure some of the honest <laughs> snarky moments that had preceded it. Yeah, I think it shows, it, it, it makes all of the, the I don't want to say questionable humor, but the idea that these kids are, are bullying Charlie Brown throughout the whole thing, it makes it all okay. For some reason, we're just suddenly okay. So, Well, that's kids too, by nature sometimes. Moral of the story, if your child is being bullied, you can have them do a musical number with their bully and everything's fine. <laughs> as long as it's a jazzy musical number. <laughs> <laughs> So I have to give Charlie Brown credit as well, because I've never heard anybody in real life blame their dog when they're ranting about the commercialization of Christmas. (laughs) 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 This commercial dog is not going to ruin my Christmas. (laughs) Challenge accepted. (laughs) Okay, so this leads us really well into, does this 25-minute TV special hold its own against full-length Christmas features? think about Christmas movies in general, do we feel like it can sit in there with all the other National Lampoons and 
Santa Claus and all of those. I absolutely think it does. In terms of its impact, it is in some ways kind of in a class of its own, um, save for maybe a couple other TV specials like Rudolph or the Grinch. I mean, if you go down the store aisles this Christmas season, you're going to see just a few um, uh, TV or film properties that litter the litter the aisles. And Charlie Brown is absolutely one of them. The fact that it can persist um, as a recurring special every single year for more than 50 years says something about its ability to hang there with the others. Yeah, it definitely, I think it holds up better than, I mean, as much as I love other movies. And like I said, I'm not the, I, I don't love, love this, but it does hold up and it's become a lot more of a cultural icon than anything we've viewed yet. Um, and discussed, I mean, it's, it's, it's so ingrained in our, like we said, it's so, there are so many things about this, this film and not, I mean the franchise, of course, but this film in particular that are ingrained in our in our cultures in our Christmas culture, it's it's impossible to to say it wouldn't hold up. Okay, so we talk every week about whether or not a movie passes the Linus test or not. I'm <laughs> almost positive that you um, are familiar with what the Linus test is. <laughs> so, does this movie pass the Linus test? No. Well, well no. <laughs> what, do, what do you mean by the the Linus test? Okay, so the Linus test is the idea that at the peak of like the emotional high of that movie, if Linus could come on screen and say, this is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> so it's the feel good, more so than specifically the religious nature of, mm-hmm. of Linus's part. But if he can show up and if it can embody that spirit of Christmas is more than the stuff. So have you seen Krampus? I have just recently. It, it, it was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> so we a, we a positive one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, honestly, I, I have mixed feelings. The the not to get too off track, but the first half of the movie, I thought this is not my speed. The second half of the movie, I thought I was watching like an eighties dark crystal sort of movie. So, right? a par- part of me kind of loved it. Part of me did not love it. Uh, <laughs> unlike my love for a Charlie Brown Christmas, which is all all encompassing. <laughs> do, do you think though, since you've seen that movie, do you think that movie passed the Linus test? Was there any uh, moment Linus could have shown up and said that? Uh, yes, at the, at the at the very very tail end. Um, he, he could have. Would it have been the best version of that? No. Uh, would it have fit with the overall plot arc? Just barely. <laughs> yeah. Well, we said we also look at it as a if a if a uh, a character has that pivotal moment where they realize what Christmas means. In essence, not again apart from the religious aspect. So when Max is meeting Krampus and he screams at him, "Hey, expletive!" and then he tell he goes face to face with Krampus and says he wants his family back. He takes his, or he takes his wish back. He, he, he's sorry. For us, that was the the turning point at which he suddenly realized, you know, Kevin McAllister when he tells Santa all he wants for Christmas is his family. You know, those those kind of moments are what we call the, the passing the Linus test. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So, I kind of think we have to it obligatory. I mean, without even discussing it, <laughs> it's Linus. <laughs> this is the basis for the Linus test. It's the original. It's absolutely, the Linus test. If it's what we're holding, if it's what we're holding everything else up to, I don't think we even if we thought so, we couldn't really say that it doesn't pass the Linus test. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final thoughts, and let's rank this movie. Stephen, final thoughts first. Yeah, what you would want our listeners to take away, and what. I love a Charlie Brown Christmas, both from a, like the just my own personal taste, my own my own faith, but I also love that it can provoke such connection. That there are uh, fans who can watch it, and they can watch it as children. They can return to it again decades later, and they can they can truly, honestly, emotionally and um, kind of intellectually connect with the content. And with as simple as the animation is, as simple as the voices are, as um, as kind of sparse as some of the wording is even at times, it is one of the heaviest hitters on TV 
during the Christmas season. And I love that. I love that it's kind of um, uh, this this kind of almost secret carrier of such weighty import. Uh, and and it's a fun one. It's a fun one that, that's endearing and charming all, all the while that it actually can provoke you to think a little bit more if you want to at the same time. How about you, Tom? So I think my opinion of the movie is, and, and my liking of it is going to grow, especially after, you know, the little foretaste I had with uh, with Ellie today, watching it with her. I have a lot of excitement about sharing this movie with my kids and and uh, using it as a great, a great building block and a learning lesson to um, express our face and why we why we really celebrate Christmas and, and what it means to us removing, you know, all of the lights except the ones on Snoopy's house and the, and Santa and, and all of the other stuff. It's, it's got a great message. And even as I've been sitting here reflecting on watching it today, my ranking has gone up from what it was when we, when I was thinking about this film early, earlier this week. So I think I'm coming around and more of a fan than I was a week ago. I, I have to admit, I, I think I was more primed and ready for it after reading Dr. Lin's book as well. That, that, that got me in the right, in the right, frame of mind to watch it i think how about you anthony i love this movie i again i think it's beautiful in its simplicity and how it's able to work in the meaning the true meaning of christmas the uh kind of darker side not darker side but the commercialism of christmas like all of it into this succinct 24 minute special and um i feel like each year that passes as i got older i love it even more i really do um but just for a side note i watched this on blu-ray today and you can tell watching it um where the commercials are supposed to be, like where the commercial breaks mm-hmm. would be. It made me actually realize I think I prefer watching like these Christmas specials on TV when they air with the commercial breaks. Like there's just something magical about the old CBS cutaway, like what Charlie Brown Christmas will return. And then you get the three minutes of like Christmas themed commercials and then you, you get back to it. But um, yeah. You know, when you anyway. say that I went, I went today and, uh, uh, went onto YouTube and watched the um, removed advertising in it, you know, for Coca-Cola. Um, mm-hmm. And there was something really endearing and charming about it. You know, when the, uh, when they're on the skating rink and Lina, uh, Snoopy grabs uh, Linus and Charlie Brown and starts spinning them around and has like the, the, ro- the, the thing around Charlie Brown's neck, um, which really seemed like an unsafe thing that we're showing children, but I'm going to let that go right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, uh, it, it cuts away kind of awkwardly with the music and everything, but uh, it went a little longer and Linus spun around and hit a sign that said brought to you by the people in your town who bottle Coca-Cola, which was kind of, I thought that was interesting. And then um, same thing at the end. It's just kind of, an, it, it's, you can tell when you're watching it, that su- when you watch the, what was originally there, when you, when you see the original, you can tell they've taken something out. Um, where it was at the end, it says Merry Christmas from the, from the people who bottle Coca-Cola. I thought it was really interesting that they were bringing it from the people who bottle nobody else. I guess the ad execs behind this and the marketing people who had the budget weren't bringing it to you. And, uh, and I noticed in the end credits that they list people for graphic blandishment, which was something I've never seen in credits before. Yeah. We're not as used to one of the, one of the interesting, um, Groups of folks who are not given credit in the uh, end sequence is the, are the the kids who actually did the singing, which was a a, a fun thing for me to do. To, to, maybe that fun's not quite the right word. An interesting thing for me to discover in research for the book, um, where the the children who did the singing are not the same children who did the voices, and they didn't get credit for a good number of years. 
uh, despite wow. hearing themselves on the speakers as they walk through their local Target during their own you know, Christmas shopping. Hey, that was me when I was <laughs> nine years old, but nobody knows it. We, we all have that friend we could imagine saying that and being like, sure you were, sure that's you. <laughs> <laughs> all artifacts of this really rushed production schedule in this kind of, you know, um, quick turnaround time of the 1960s where they were really doing it for the first time. It was their, it was their first foray into um, an animated special and boy did they knock it out of the park for <laughs> for the first go around well i mean obviously i love this movie um alongside elf this is the one that starts my christmas season um but i can watch it during the year but we always make sure that that when it's time to decorate the tree this movie's on the music makes me happy the characters just i know these characters and i love these characters and it is timeless in its simplicity uh, i can see my kids not be turned off at any point in the movie when they watch it they don't ever ask me what how old is this movie? So I really love that about it too, um, because I just know that their kids will continue to watch it and on and on. The legacy is just, it's brilliant. So I know we're not ranking this against other movies. I think it's important to tell people the reason we're not is because it seems pretty unfair. Well, I think we should have watch. I think we should have a separate list for the Christmas specials on television. Right. It just seems a little unfair to put National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation up against Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, Yeah. I feel like if we did that, you can probably surmise what our top 10 movies are going to be. And they're going to be like... Like, I mean, at least I'll be home for Christmas. Um, Don't get, don't bring out angry Anthony. (laughs) We made a whole episode without angry Anthony. It's great. (laughs) Cool. So, well, let's give our numbers for it's this list. Okay. I'm going to give it a 10. How about you, Steven? What would you rank it? On a scale of one to 10. Oh, for sure. 10. Um, 8.5. Scandalous. <laughs> That's what my original ranking was. I think, I'm, I think, like I said, since watching it and reflecting on it today, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and, and deviate from that and go up to a 9. Uh, I'll purpose- pressure works. <laughs> I now have such a fond memory with it, though. Like I'm a I'm a gushy mushy dad. I think I think that definitely factor our memories definitely factor into where our movies are going to ring. And I have a new memory, so I have a new ranking. So there, Julia. Yay. Um, I'll preface before I give my score that um, <laughs> if I had <laughs> if I had to find one criticism, if I had one criticism of it, it's a maybe it's not as feel good as like um, Rudolph, for example. So I feel like certain people have to be in a certain mood to watch it. So I was going to deduct half a point for that. But as we talked about, like, I think that's kind of what makes this film so brilliant is it um, delves into that, you know, more depressing side of Christmas that some people experience. So for that reason, I love this film. I'm going to give it a 10, flat out 10. All right. And if we're branching into two separate lists, well... This one is top now. It's the top of its own list. So it's 39 divided by four, which is nine point something. (laughs) 9.75. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lin, for joining us. We just want to tell everybody we will have a link to Dr. Lin's book on our social media next week and in the show notes. So if you have a chance, you should definitely check it out. It is a Charlie Brown religion exploring the spiritual life and work of Charles Schultz. Um, It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. I learned a lot um, and think you guys would enjoy it as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Lin. Oh, thank thank you. you. This was a blast. That was fun. I'm really, really glad. He stuck around. Um, as always, we want to thank everybody for their interactions and for the listener mail and iTunes reviews. Um, Anthony, you want to take us to some of those? Sure. We got a comment on Reddit from a underscore then underscore white underscore Duke. 
They actually wrote in last week, and you heard their question at the beginning of this episode. They were one of the people who sent in a question for Dr. Lind, but they answered our question about our Advent calendar traditions, and they said, finally, my Advent is just a normal chocolate one, dairy milk here in the UK, but I bought my wife a little Advent wooden house with drawers that I fill with treats, such as sweets slash candy, chocolate, soap slash bath bombs, ornaments, etc. It's fun for me to fill it and then for my wife to open. That sounds really awesome. That's I really like nice. That. What a good guy. Yeah, that's a great guy. Side note, you have no idea how hard it is for me to say drawers, drawers. Drawers? Like that, drawers? That's one of the only words I have the thick New York accent for. I'm like drawers. Sarah, get something out of my drawers. <laughs> that makes me think of your pants, like your underpants specifically, <laughs> is what I think of. <laughs> my drawers. That's South Texas. <laughs> oh gosh that's so funny so disco 54 also wrote in about a charlie brown christmas you heard his question for dr lynn uh at the beginning of the show but he had some interesting things to say about it so i'm gonna read it directly because i don't want to botch paraphrasing it being good and diligent is the podcaster i'm watching i'm going to watch a charlie brown christmas today but i have a confession i've never seen it I can only put this down to being British, and it's just not a thing here. We don't get it shown here, or at least I never see it shown on any channels. I don't recall watching it as a child. Peanuts was shown on TV when I was a child, and Snoopy is obviously iconic. But as Christmas, we had the snowman and Father Christmas and other things. Although I do remember watching Yogi's First Christmas. You have me cold, because this is a much-loved American tradition for over 50 years, and I have no history of it. I'm going into it as an adult. I'm not sure I'm supposed to do that. We'll report back later. Edit by me, by we, I mean me and my two-year-old daughter. She still has no opinion. She barely stayed awake through the first rendition of Christmas Time is here. Uh, okay. So he did He did write back in a few hours later after he did watch it. So he wrote, I don't know what to make of it. I definitely need to watch it again. I liked it, but it's not what I was expecting. How much of a problem was the commercialization of Christmas? With all the commercialization of Christmas in 1965 anyway. Well, Dr. Lynn answered that for us. Um, but he went on to say, I don't know if it's trying to make a point about Christmas, depression, America, religion, child, or none of them. It may be an accidental work of genius, or it might be a cartoon I'm trying to read things into. Anyway, it was sweet and nostalgic. It definitely reminded me of a simpler time. There were a few real laughs in there, and the music is great. I can see why it's so loved. If I'd grown up with it, I'd love it as well. So That's a really cool that- take. Yeah, mm, it is. And then um, we had another listener, Kirkland P, replied to that comment. He said, "Very interesting to hear the thoughts of someone watching it for the first time. Nostalgia probably plays a huge part of, for us Americans that love it. It gives me such warm feeling in a way that a lot of people will find weird in twenty-seven-year-old straight white male." Charles Schultz definitely took on all those subjects you mentioned, and most of the comic strips are very melancholy in a way that goes over kids' heads but speaks to adults. That's why it stayed so successful. But so thanks for writing in. Um, thanks for writing in Kirkland P. Uh, I agree. It's interesting hearing the take of not only somebody who was watching it for the first time, but a foreigner. Absolutely. Because it does seem so American to me. Yeah. And Dr. Lind explained that pretty well. Um, yeah. 
Tom, do you want to let the listeners know about our Spotify playlist and the fun game they can partake in? All right. So we teased at it last week, but we do have a Tis the Podcast Spotify playlist that's available. You'll see it in the show notes and on all the social media today. If you want to go listen to it, it's fun? Question mark? Um, (laughs) It's really interesting. It's very eclectic. We have we have these different genres and musical styles and tastes from all three of us blended into this podcast. So I highly recommend playing it on Shuffle. But uh, if you want to play a fun game on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit, uh, reply in the comments and tell us if there's a particular song that jumps out at you besides Christmas and Hollis. Let us know who you think put that song on the playlist. Spoiler alert, I did not put that on the playlist. So one of these two did. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. You sit on the throne okay. of lies. <laughs> um, okay, so next week's movie is going to be interesting. It's one that I've not seen yet. I definitely know that Tom has seen it, but um, we're going to definitely monopolize on it being October, and we're going to touch another. Is this a Christmas movie? Christmas movie with Santa's sleigh. It's a horror. S L A Y. I think I, I will just note, by the way, just in case our listeners like aren't fans of the horror Christmas stuff, I think this is the last one we have scheduled for this year that's really not up for debate as if to if to whether or not it's a Christmas movie. So we have a lot of classics coming, so we do. We're just trying to to celebrate the the Halloween time. Um, yes. So we've got this one, and then we have uh, Nightmare Before Christmas this month as well. Um, but as we get closer to Christmas, don't worry. All of your beloved Christmas movies, Christmas Vacation, Rudolph. I think I think there's only one Santa Claus past Halloween that's a debatable Christmas movie, and that's Batman Returns which we have scheduled for the week Justice League comes out. So anyway, sorry, Julia. No, you're fine. So anybody out there who has seen Santa's sleigh, tell us about what you think about it. I'd love to know. And I'm, I'm wondering myself because again, I have not seen it yet. <laughs> so I'm super excited about that. Can we take odds on what, what are the odds? Angry Anthony is going to make an appearance next week. I just want to apologize for being part of the reason you're going to watch this, Julia. <laughs> I'm going to have to fast forward a little through the naughty bits. I have a feeling. Oh, yeah, there are some. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The question, bear in mind for next week, the question will probably end up being, does Santa's sleigh top I'll be home for Christmas? (laughs) Have you seen it, Anthony? (laughs) I, I know I've seen parts of it. I don't think I've ever seen the full movie. And the fact that I've only seen parts of it should tell you something about my initial feelings right there. <laughs> it is. Okay. We won't. I, I won't. Next week. Okay. So in addition to comments, <laughs> in addition to comments on Santa's sleigh, um, let us know what you think of Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, we obviously all vary between loving it more than anything. And then I've just now begun to love this movie. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well, especially your histories with it. I'd love to know when was the first time you saw it and did you love it immediately or did that love grow over time? Like it did with Tom. Okay. So my question to y'all and to our listeners 
for this week is what is your favorite Christmas themed book or short story? Tom, do you want to go first? I do. Um, mine is re- it's several years ago. Um, one of Christine's family members gave us a copy of skipping Christmas by John Grisham. And, and I'm not a big John Grisham fan. I haven't read anything else of his. Um, I did go hear him speak when he was here in town, which was pretty cool, but um, I have no connection with John Grisham, but I read that book and loved it. So that year we bought a copy of it for everybody in our family. I gave it to my mom, my grandma, Christine's parents. Um, it was, and, and I still love reading it every year. And then of course um, you can't go wrong with Dickens of Christmas Carol. Julia, what's your favorite? Sure. My favorite is um, a short story by Truman Capote, a Christmas memory. Um, I can't go wrong with Truman Capote in general, but that particular short story is the words are so beautiful and I don't just read it at Christmas, but I always make a point to read it at Christmas. Um, it reminds me a lot of some of my family members growing up and kind of the experiences. Never read it. I'm adding that to my list now. What's it's what's great. it? What's the basic premise? I'm um, adding it to my list. Definitely. But I just, what's the premise? It's the story of a kid and a family member and how they prepare for Christmas. Hmm. That's all I'm going to give you because it's a short story. (laughs) So I can't. Um, Well, if we're picking second favorites. Sorry. uh, No, I'm, I'm okay with this because I have two written down. Um, I'm also picking the Polar Express by Chris Van Allsburg. The book Um, is so much better than the movie. The book is beautiful. All of Chris Van Allsburg's books are beautiful. And really yeah. that's the power of it. I think the story with the pictures, because I love his illustrations. So the artwork in that book that is book. just breathtaking. It really it is. is. So much better than Tom Hanks. Oh, <laughs> you want you the, uh, don't, that might be another Arthur Christmas for me when we get to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, Anthony, what about you? <laughs> Well, I mentioned the Batman version of a Christmas Carol before, which I read every Christmas Eve, Batman Noel. Mm-hmm. I, I, like Tom said, I love the original Christmas Carol, but I'm a huge DC fan, Batman fan, and I just love the idea of him in the Scrooge role, Catwoman in the Ghost of Christmas Past role, Superman in the Ghost of Christmas Present role, and the Joker in the Ghost of Christmas Future, and uh, Jason Todd as Marley. Um, <laughs> it's really, really well done. Um, but besides, oh, this question was hard because I have a few, so I'm just I don't care about seconds or thirds, <laughs> I'm just gonna list them off. Um, I every year I read the poem The Night Before Christmas, I love it, I think it's very, I love the Nightmare Before Christmas poem that he wrote before he wrote the screenplay for the film. I think that's also really wait, I, I didn't know about this. YouTube it. Christopher Lee does reads the audio of it. It's on the DVD. Wow. Um, but the poem is really good. It's basically the same amount of like uh, lines and stances almost as uh, the night before Christmas. It rhymes. You know, it's just the Halloween version. You know, and it's Christopher Lee reading it. Yeah. Oh, um, it's very very good. So I and they published it as a picture book. So I have that. Um, you know, The Grinch, I love that book. The Gift of the Magi, I love that story. That one's a classic. Did you guys read that one, though? I mean, everyone mm-hmm. knows the story, but did you read it? Julie, you should read it. It's really good. I don't think I've read it. Really good. Yeah. So I would be the- remiss I'd be remiss if I didn't say, um, in our family every year, we do read um, the uh, story of Christ's birth in uh, 
Luke ah, chapter two. I love the whole story of Christ, the nativity. When he was born in the cave. Not the manger. Not the wooden creche type structure. Not not, <laughs> right. not in not in a fifteenth uh, century stable. Anyway, I like that uh, story as well. That's one of my favorites as well, the Christmas story. Have you read the story a Christmas story was based on? The book a Christmas story was based on? No, neither have I. I was just curious. But I mean, uh, I I know it was based on a pretty well-received book. So I was just wondering if anyone's ever read it. Huh. We should have that as required reading before we watch it. Yes, good idea. Can I, I just have to tell you guys I'm really happy that I'm doing this with... with Literate, literary people. Oh, me too. <laughs> so share with us your themed books or short stories because we want to add to our list as well. Um, like Tom just said, we all love to read and, and we can appreciate it. So share them with us. We want to know. We also, like we do every week, want to make sure and ask that you answer our questions, follow us, review us. Um, and that takes us into our promotional giveaway that we are working on with y'all. Um, Anthony, do you want to speak a little more to that? The three of us are actually very pleasantly surprised how many listeners we already have, considering we're only eight episodes in at this point, seven when we're recording this. And, um, you know, we really want each and every one of you, if you possibly could, to leave us a review on iTunes and or Facebook, because the more reviews you get, the higher up in the searches we become and more people will find us and then we can spread Christmas cheer to more people and then they can in turn share us to other people. We be, and you know, we'll grow. And uh, to, you know, bribe you guys into leaving reviews for us. We have an ongoing promotional giveaway going on at the moment. So anyone who leaves us a review on iTunes or Facebook before Halloween, which is before Halloween, the morning of Halloween, will be entered into a contest to win a Pop Funko figure of Cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. If you write a review for iTunes, you'll be entered into that contest. If you write a review for Facebook, you'll be entered into that contest. If you write, if you write a review for both, you'll be entered twice. And for those of you who wrote us a review before the contest started, you'll automatically be entered twice as well. So yeah, please, 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 please rate and review us because everyone helps. If we could write and review all of our listeners, we would, guys. We definitely would. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time. Just remember, guys, there are only 77 days until Christmas, only 76 until Santa Claus visits. Get excited. Yay. Bye, guys. Hey, we went a whole episode without talking about Harry Potter. Mm-hmm.